Well, I'm happy to be here today, and uh, as you can tell, my voice is not very much here, so I'm going to do my best and rely on God's strength to get me through this, because I can't do it on my own. Uh, the last 48 hours, I just come down with a head cold. My body's fine. I don't have a fever, anything like that. Just my voice is going, and I've had some sinus congestion, so it's not that much fun, but I'm here. I'm ready to go, and... Uh, by God's glory, we'll get through this. Halls have been my best friend over the last little while, so. <laughs> well, what would we do <clears throat> without words? You ever thought of that? What would we do without words? Words are such an important part of our lives. Have you ever thought how important words are to you? I mean, we use words when we talk to someone. If you talked to anyone in your family this morning, you used words to talk to them. If last time you made a phone call, you used words. If you listened to a speech lately, you probably heard a lot of words. You're listening to a lot of words right now. Uh, my average sermon goes about 4,000 words in length, so that <laughs> gives you a picture. Words are important. We listen to words that are spoken on radio or TV shows or movies or the news. We read, we're taught to read words from a very young age or to write words or to type words. And that's because these are very crucial skills in our culture to know. We read headlines and articles in newspapers, magazines on the internet. All these are made of words, books, letters, recipes, instructions, signs, menus, emails, tweets, texts. Words can also move us emotionally. Have you ever felt that before? If you read a moving and emotional poem, or sing a great song together, or maybe read an emotionally charged story, words can move us. Since you've come into church this morning, you've probably sang words that are on the screen, saying them in praise to God. You've probably spoken words to each other as we went around and greeted each other. I know Ray gets around and greets everyone. He said a lot of words in there. <laughs> we have listened to words that people have spoken to you or prayed. And many of you in a minute will probably start writing words in your bulletin, and your sermon notes. I could go on a long time here. The point is words are crucial to our lives. They really are. They're very important. But I would say there's a type of words that are much more important than any I've mentioned so far. A type of words that are way, way more important. And these words are supernatural words that have come from God to us. We believe that God has spoken to us. We're in the midst of a sermon series right now talking about how God has revealed himself to man. And how he's revealed himself in many ways, even though he's sovereign and transcendent and infinite, that he wants us to know him and to get to know him better. It's really an amazing truth. So he's revealed himself to us in many ways. And one way that we believe God has revealed himself to us is using words. Supernatural words that come from God's mouth to our eyes and our ears and our hearts. That God would use human words to tell us about himself is really amazing. I'm paraphrasing D.A. Carson, who says this, All we mean by words is bound up with scratching words on a paper or tapping into keyboards so that a little light 
symbol shows up on the screen, or it involves vibrating our vocal cords so that the sound is heard through the air and goes through all the parts of our ears and we hear the sounds in our brains. That's all we mean by words. But God doesn't have any of that stuff. And yet he's a talking God. Yet he's a speaking God, a God who speaks to us. I think this is the turning point in our study of God's revelation. See, what we've studied so far, looking at our conscience and that history and creation, these are ways that God has revealed himself universally to everyone on earth in some form or manner. Whether or not everyone sees them as God's revelation is another issue. But God has revealed himself in these general ways to everyone. Now we're moving into a realm where the theologians call special revelation where God has specifically revealed himself to specific people at times in history. And God has used words in very specific ways, in special ways, to communicate to man. He's spoken directly and audibly to many people in history. People like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. He's spoken audibly to them. He gave us the Mosaic Law through Moses, who we know at the beginning of our Bibles, to show his morality and his holiness to men. He's used prophets to communicate his words to the people. They go, thus saith the Lord. They're his words. All these forms are supernatural words. But most importantly to us today, he's given us the Bible. He's given us the Bible. There's a reason we refer to the Bible as God's word. Because it is God's word to us. So this is the revelation we'll be specifically looking at today. Last week, we looked at creation. We looked at the first half of Psalm 19. And so today we're going to actually look at the second half of the same psalm, the great psalm that David wrote. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 19. And I know I need God's help this morning to speak, and you need God's help to hear from his word. And so let's pray as we go to this text. Lord, I need you this morning. I need your words to speak through me, your power to speak through me. Please sustain my voice. Help me to speak your words and yours alone. Tell nothing that I say to go against your word or to um, diminish them in any way. And that you be glorified this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's begin today by reading the first part of the psalm that we looked at last week. Okay, so Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Now, in verse 7, where we're going to start today, David makes a dramatic shift in topics. It's so different from the first part of the psalm that some people have suggested that there are actually two different psalms put together arbitrarily. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe that there's actually a very clear underlying theme throughout this psalm. 
And that is the theme of God's revelation. Then in the first six verses, we see how God has revealed himself through creation, how he speaks through creation, and how amazing that is. And then in the next verses, David talks about the way God has spoken in his word and how he has revealed himself through that and how amazing that revelation is. We're going to learn a a few specific things about God's word today. The first one's very easy to see in these verses that we're going to read, and that is that the revealed words of God are wonderful. God's word is wonderful, it's great, it's perfect, and it's amazing. The revealed words of God are wonderful. Let's see how David says this here in very poetic fashion. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Let's stop there for now. One feature of Hebrew poetry was to say something, and then to say the same thing in a little bit of a different way, to give a different emphasis, and then to say it again, a little bit different way. That's what David does here. He mentions six different aspects of God's words to explain how wonderful they really are. So he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. Now, as you look at this list of synonyms for God's word, you might say, okay, God's word and statutes and precepts, commands and ordinances, those kind of all go together. They're all clear words of God. But why does David here say in verse 9, the fear of the Lord? Something doesn't seem to fit there, right? Why is that included in the list? Well, just to define the fear of the Lord quickly, the fear of the Lord is not a terror of God. It is a holy reverence and awe of who God is that leads to obedience. That's the fear of the Lord. And while it's true that the fear of the Lord is not technically a synonym for Scripture, it does describe a very important connection to God's Word. And that is that the fear of the Lord is the intended result of God's Word. Okay, The fear of the Lord is the intended result. God gives us His words, intending us to hear them and fear Him and obey Him. Deuteronomy 4 verse 10 it says, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. So that's why it's included here, I believe. is that The fear of the Lord is why God's word exists. It's intending us to fear him and to know him. Now, you might already have a pretty big question about what David is saying here in verse in Psalm 19. See, David describes God's word as being perfect and trustworthy, sure and pure. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. But you might ask the question, is the Bible actually perfect? I mean, that's a pretty big claim. That this book that we believe came from God is perfect. Is it really 
I mean, we believe that God, it's God's words, but that it came through men. Men aren't perfect. Or many people in our world claim the Bible is full of errors or contradictions. That's not perfect. Some people, especially people in other faiths, believe that the Bible has been corrupted. That maybe it was perfect originally, but it's been corrupted over the years. And that's not perfect. So how do we answer that? Well, I believe there are many, many, many excellent reasons to believe that our Bible is the perfect word of God to us. Now, this does not mean that as you read the Bible today, that every single word is the exact word that God spoke to people in the past, because the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in these other languages. That's why we call them translations. These are our best translations of God's word to us. But we do believe that they are very trustworthy and very in the most sense of the word, it's perfect transmission of God's word to us. We believe the Bible is what the theologians call inerrant, or without error. Inerrancy is the belief that the Bible, here's a technical definition for you, in its original manuscripts and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in what it affirms. Now I'll say this, granted, okay, humans are not perfect. So, this book was written by humans, but human authors writing down words straight from the Holy Spirit, who is perfect, write perfect words. And when it comes to alleged errors that people bring up or contradictions, there are some things that may not be exact in Scripture, okay? So, it's not an absolute textbook of this is an absolute fact, but... Everything in the Bible is true, and it is accurate. There's a very specific reason I use those words. They're not exact, but they are true, and they are accurate. This accounts for the vast majority of what some wrongly call contradictions. This also allows that there may be some very minor transmission errors. We believe that the Bible is perfect in its original manuscripts, and throughout the years there may have been some very minor changes along the way. But close literary inspection has proven that these are extremely rare, and they have never affected any key doctrines of Scripture. Never. We can go back and see ancient manuscripts. I'll get to that in a minute. But they've never affected key doctrines in Scripture. And the claim that the Bible has been corrupted over the years is absolutely ridiculous. There is no historical, archaeological, or literary reason to believe this. There are great reasons to believe the Bible has been accurately transmitted to us. Like I said, we can go back and see ancient manuscripts from thousands of years ago that look and look at them to see if what we're reading today is accurate. Is it the same words that were written then? And it's amazing when people get deeper and deeper into this how accurate our Bible has proven over and over again. God has truly preserved his word. Archaeological discoveries of early copies of Scripture, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, have only kept confirming the accuracy of modern translations. So we go back to the earliest copies we have, and it's like, wow! These are the same words that we have today. It's incredible. 
And for the years before we have manuscripts, we have reports that are very accurate of how scripture was transmitted. And let me tell you, it was an extremely detailed process. There was an official class of these Hebrew scribes who transmitted the Old Testament as they wrote it down. And they worked with strict rules. They meticulously copied every single letter, every single punctuation mark, and then it was repeatedly checked again and again and again. If there was one error in the entire entire book, they threw it out and burned it. One error. That means one period missed. One comma missed. It was thrown out. Extremely accurate way of transmission. It's quite amazing the way that God has used people over the years to preserve his word. Now, I can't go into further detail on this today, but I have only, I've only scratched the surface. There are great resources out here that I can get for you if you're intrigued by this, if you're interested further. Come talk to me. I'd love to help you if this is something you've struggled with. But we have very, very good reasons to trust God's word for be, of being perfect. Back here in Psalm 19, David makes it clear that God's spoken revelation is also very rewarding. It's wonderful because it's rewarding. It revives the soul in verse 7, making wise the simple, giving joy to the heart, giving light to the eyes, endures forever. It's altogether righteous. I believe that we need to go to the Word way more often than we do in our lives. To spend time on it. Meditate on it. Let it change us as we read it. Do you feel like your faith is kind of complacent or even dying or dead? Do you need a personal revival? Go to the Word. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It revives the soul. You might say God's Word is like the defibrillator paddles that bring a dead person back to life. It revives us. Do you feel like you don't know God very well? Or you don't know his ways very well? Go to the word. It makes wise the simple. Do you feel downcast, sad, depressed, anxious? Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Brings us joy. It's very rewarding. How wonderful is God's word? Well, David goes on to use two vivid metaphors to describe it. Read it with me in verse 10. It says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So the first picture he gives is that God's word is more precious than gold. It's basically saying God's word is priceless. You can't put a cost on it. Having it is better than being the richest man in the world. Now, we might say something like that, but do we believe it? We might say that God's word is priceless, but let's say, for example, if I brought two pedestals in here today, put God's word on one, put a briefcase full of money on the other, maybe a million bucks, which one would you rather have? Well, of course you say, well, I'd rather have both. But if you had to choose for the rest of your life, you had God's word or you had the money, which one would you choose? It would be a hard decision for many of us. But it shouldn't be. 
God's word is precious than gold, than much pure gold. Because what it teaches us and reveals to us about God is priceless. We really do have a priceless treasure when we hear from God's word. It's amazing. The second picture David gives is that God's word is sweeter than honey. And honey was, of course, what Hebrew people, many people throughout years, even today, have used to sweeten foods. Honey, straight from the comb, as David says in verse 10, was the sweetest thing David could even imagine. Okay, He couldn't think of anything in the world that is sweeter than honey from the comb. To make a parallel analogy today, we might say that God's word is sweeter than a bowl of ice cream. Or it's sweeter than a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. Or it's sweeter than the maple fudge or beaver tails. or The foods that bring great pleasure to us. So we taste them. Let me ask you, do you find pleasure in God's word? Do you find it sweet? Or do you find it dull or boring? We should be thrilled with the fact that we get to read, hear, and study words that God himself spoke. And you, I believe, will never find pleasure in God's word if you always ignore it. You never will. You'll never find it sweet to if you don't invest time into knowing it and to knowing the God behind it. That's really the reason. He intends the Bible to lead to the fear of the Lord, but he intends the Bible also that we would know him, that we would know God. A.W. Tozer says the sacred page is not meant to be the end, but only the means toward the end, which is knowing God himself. The fact that we have words that we can know God by is amazing and wonderful. The revealed words of God truly are wonderful. But that's not all we'll see here. David starts getting very practical in the next few verses leading up to the end of the chapter. And what David says that God's word helps us do here is something that every single one of us can use more of in our lives. I know this. And that is that the revealed words of God aid our growth in holiness. God's word helps us in our spiritual life as we endeavor to be holy. The revealed words of God aid our growth in holiness. Let's see how David says this here. Excuse me. Verse 11. By them, by your words, is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So in these verses, David starts, begins speaking directly to God as a prayer. And when he says, your servant, he's speaking of himself. So it's like, a servant will come to a king. I'm your servant. It says, your servant is warned by them. And keep your servant also from willful sins. And I would say, just like a parent might talk about when they're disciplining their children or something, or training them, they talk about positive and negative reinforcement, right? You need to give both. For your children to be well around, you need positive and negative reinforcement to train them. And David says God's word is doing that. That it both rewards and it warns us on both sides. Verse 11, by them is your servant warned 
That's the negative. And in keeping them, there is great reward. I don't know if you've ever had a dog or a pet you're trying to train. Okay? You know that you have to both warn it and reward it. Otherwise, it's not going to get trained. And so you say, sit, or stay, or go to your bed, or do this, do that. These are warnings. Do this. And if they don't obey, there's consequences. But if the dog does what you tell them to do, you reward them. Whether that's just a pat on the head or a good boy, good girl, or you give them a treat, you reward good behavior. And now, that's, that analogy falls out because we're not dogs, thank goodness. But <laughs> when we come to the Bible, it's training us in this way. It's warning us and it's rewarding us. So how does the Bible warn and reward us? How does it do that? Well, it warns us by telling us certain things that we should do or shouldn't do in our lives. It warns us that, and if we don't obey, there will be consequences. Things like, watch out for false teaching. Or, you'll get dragged down with it. Or maybe, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Your words, your actions, they'll be corrupted if you don't guard it. Or, worship God alone. Or you'll be guilty of idolatry. These are warnings that come from God's word. And then it rewards us when we obey. There's great blessings for the righteous. We've seen already some in here. It revives the soul, makes us wise, gives us joy. But the ultimate goal of all these warnings and rewards is to make us holy. It's to make us holy. Do you see what David focuses on on these verses? He's focusing on keeping away from sin. So by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Talking about himself. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. We all have these two types of sins in our lives that David talks about. Hidden faults and willful sins. We have them both. Sins that we don't even know we're committing. And sins that we consciously choose to commit. Both make us guilty. I'm sure you've all felt at different times in your life of being convicted of a sin that you didn't even know that you were guilty of. This week as I was doing something that most people would consider a very good deed to do, I just thought about it. I was like, wait a second, what are my motivations for doing this? And I realized all my motivations for doing this good thing were selfish. And it's like, even our motivations for good things are corrupted by sin. And often we don't even realize it. But we've been so corrupted by the sin in our lives. And David cries out, Lord, forgive my hidden faults. Forgive my hidden faults. God's word helps guide us away from these. It helps, uh, points them out in our lives. It says, you're guilty of this. You're supposed to be striving to be holy. And it moves us toward that. It moves us toward holiness. It shows us that the Lord does forgive these sins. He forgives us. And then he says, 
keep me from willful sins. These are sins that we commit even though we know they're wrong and we do them anyway. So guys, when we see a pretty girl walking down the street and choose to hold that stare, that's a willful sin. Kids, when your parents tell you to do something and you refuse, that's a willful sin. For every one of us here, when we get angry, let our emotions get the best of us, start yelling at people, choose not to keep ourselves in control, that's a willful sin. And God's Word can help steer us away from these towards holiness. It warns us about them, and then it rewards us when we obey. David cries out, Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. If you're struggling with these, we all are. Different variations of life, we're all struggling with sins. Go to the Word. They'll warn you when you're wrong, and they'll reward you when you're doing right. It aids us in our growth toward holiness. It says, you need to be doing this. So what does the Bible say about that sin that you're struggling with? Find out. It does. It talks about it. Maybe memorize some verses to help you fight that. Fight sin with God's word. Now you might hear this verse that says, Then I will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And you think, wait a second, if we're all guilty of these, how can David say that we could be blameless and innocent? I mean, he's asking for forgiveness. How could he be blameless after that? Well, like I said, David admits that he sinned, obviously, and he asked for forgiveness. But the basis for his being blameless or innocent rests completely upon God. You see that? It's not based on anything he could do. It says, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless. It's like, if you forgive me, if you keep me from sinning, I'll be blameless. He's just asking for what many of us desire. We want to be holy, I believe. We're all guilty sinners who desire this. We want to be holy, but we can't attain it on our own. We can't. It's impossible. And I believe the greatest reward that we are given from God's Word comes when it tells us about the Gospel. And it tells us the good news of how we can be blameless and innocent in God's sight. How we as guilty sinners can somehow become innocent and blameless because God sent his son Jesus to earth as the ultimate word of God. John 1.1 says, The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. This word of God died in our stead. He took our place, taking our punishment. And now we can be forgiven. Can be forgiven. We can become innocent and blameless because of Jesus' righteousness alone. Have you ever accepted this before? Have you ever believed that to be true? That Jesus came 
and died for you? It's the only way you will ever truly become holy. See, following God's word, it keeps us growing toward holiness, but you'll never attain it just by following a list of commands or trying to get certain rewards. You can't get there. But Jesus provides a way that we can. The Bible reveals the Holy Lamb that was slain so that we can be holy. I, a really neat verse, John five thirty nine, when Jesus was talking to certain men of his day, he said, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. They testify about Jesus. I pray that you'll accept him. Come talk to me today. I'd love to talk if I have a voice to talk with you. <laughs> but this is, so, this is the most important decision you could ever make in your life. Well, as David goes on here, as he meditated on the wonders of God's revelation in his word, he concluded the psalm by thinking of how it should impact his own life. How, where does the rubber meet the road? How does God's word impact him? And that should be our response as well. Every time we come to God's word, we should be actively considering how we can apply it to our lives. How we can put it into practice. So after examining in the first part of the psalm, he talks about God's revelation in creation. And then he looks at the greater revelation of God's revelation in his word. He's inspired to pray a prayer that is very well known. Read in verse 14. It says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What do we learn from this conclusion? I put it this way, that the revealed words of God should influence our own words and thoughts. The way that God has spoken to us should impact the way we think and the way we speak. The revealed words of God should influence our own words and thoughts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. The fact that God chose to speak to us in human words really should astound us. And it should affect the way we speak. God's spoken to us in this way. How do we speak? How do we think? How, and you might ask the question, well, how does, how should God's word affect our own? How does this happen? Boy, does the Bible have a lot to say about our words. It talks about our tongue and our mouth and our words, our speech, so often. Our words are taken very seriously by God. And when I'm honest with myself, I know, I know that many of the words that I choose to speak don't please God. I know that. If you think that you never say anything that displeases God, you're deceiving yourself. When we swear or curse, gossip, slander, lie, discourage others, take God's name in vain, even when we just talk too much, we displease God. Our words do not please God. In an amusing yet uh, sobering quote, John Calvin once said, I consider looseness with words 
no less a defect than looseness of the bowels. See, God's words are pure and they are perfect and they are trustworthy. Ours, on the other hand, are corrupt and unholy and untrustworthy. And if what comes out of our mouths is so foul, where do we even start with our thoughts? When David says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the meditation of my heart is our thoughts, our meditations, what we think. And we often say what we think, but many times something goes to our mind that we would be, people would be horrified to hear us actually say. How many times have you had that happen to you? Countless. We can rightly join in David's prayer. Somehow, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We know our words and our thoughts don't please you. God, please make our words and thoughts be pleasing to you. In light of your words, we can't do it on our own. We need his help. And you might ask, well, if our words and our thoughts aren't very pleasing to him, what hope is there that we can be pleasing to God? And we go back to what we talked about before. See, one person perfectly pleased God in his life. Jesus did. He came and he lived a perfect life. He never said an evil word. And somehow his life is given to us. We're identified with him, forgiven through him. So when we put our faith in him, we're identified in him, when, 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 we, when we do good works because his grace has saved us, when we, by the Holy Spirit, just we seek to live godly lives, it pleases him. That's amazing in and of itself. That our lives can be pleasing to God. We can please God because the Lord is our rock and our redeemer. As David ends, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you wanted to learn about someone in history, say Queen Victoria or someone like that, you want to learn about them, get to know about them, how would you go about doing that? Well, you'd look up resources on them, look up books. You'd probably search out books or articles written about them. But what if you found a book written by Queen Victoria herself? That research would top them all, wouldn't it? Because you would be learning about her straight from her. Be learning about her, getting to know about her. And in a similar way, as we desire to know God, we could read thousands of books about God from every theological standpoint, from every age in history, all sorts of opinions, but we keep coming back to one. And that's because in the Bible, we have a book that is written about God, by God, and for God's glory. It's amazing. It's time that we actually get to know our God that we worship through his word. We should be forever grateful that God chose to reveal himself to us in this way, using spoken and written words. Words, something that is so basic to our existence. 
we talked about. Something that we can so easily understand. And something that's so remarkable. That we can just stand in awe of the perfect God who has spoken to us. And keeps speaking to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. It speaks truth into our lives. It speaks life into our lives. And in it we learn about Jesus, who you sent for us. Pray that our lives would reflect your word in our imperfect ways that somehow please you. We thank you for your grace and your love that you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.